0: I try to talk about this subject every week now, but I've decided with everything that's going on, we just, uh, before I make this show today, I w- I've learned that we've put $900 million, that's almost a billion dollars, folks, into one thing making electrification stations all around this nation in over 35 states. And there's already several thousand out there. And that's what that money's going to pay for so that you can go anywhere you want, anytime you want with an electric car. Yes, will it take a longer time to charge than buy any tank of gas? Yes, but it saves 80% on the energy you're using uh, to go where you're going. And some, it's Folks, if we were back at uh, Horse and Wagon, we'd still have to go. So it's time that, that we start Taking whatever steps are necessary to get into, and more or less, I'll call it, the electric world. There is finite amounts of fossil fuels. There's no doubt about it. I have some good friends that are all on board with me from the word go, which I think is cool. And I have friends that say, oh, well, I I couldn't drive. I I, I can't go in an electric truck anywhere. Then I talked to them. I had a good friend over here yesterday that, that uh, has just bought a new Ford vehicle, but not an electric. And I said, well, why didn't you get the electric? He drove it, and he liked it. He says, well, I just, what if I want to go to Colorado tomorrow? I said, Carl, when's the last time you went to Colorado? <laughs> I mean, once a year, once every two years? You will save more money owning an electric vehicle for your local two hundred or less mile runs every day. And I can't imagine the average person goes uh, thirty nine miles, and that includes those folks that do a lot of long driving. Most of us go in the twenties, uh, twenty twenty five miles every day, and and then when you do need that once a year or twice a year trip, yes, you bite the bullet and you rent yourself a vehicle, whatever you want. But you add up the money and and the savings that you've gotten and then add up what it takes to rent the car, and you're still ahead in dollars. You don't put the wear and tear on your automobile. It's on somebody else's. And you can go anywhere you want if you want to do that. And soon, by soon I mean a decade, I don't mean tomorrow, you'll be able to charge in a few minutes. They have those batteries on board. We just haven't, uh, I want to say, made them as safe as we want them to be. But that's coming. Another thing that I recommended that I have not seen on the market is a carry-along extra electric, I'll call it a safety factor. It's like people that used to carry, I see when I was in Australia, they carry two 5-gallon or 10-gallon uh, tanks on the front of their bumpers because they're going so far. And they take that as an extra backup. Someone's developing, I think it's Tesla, a battery that that you when you're not having to fill your trunk with something or your pickup or whatever, it'll take you another 50 or 75 miles. If you really get yourself in a bind, that would pretty much save you anywhere in our country at least. And they'll be much more compact than they would have been 10 years ago. They're going to be pretty inexpensive, all things considered. And if you want to add that to your car or your vehicle, or my kids just got a a Maverick pickup truck, uh, that's another solution. Right now, if I had to buy one tomorrow and did need to travel, I'd just buy a hybrid. The newest hybrids use the electric first. Then go to the gas after you go. Even the, the, the little guys that don't go very far go fifty or sixty miles on an electric charge before that little engine kicks in to charge the batteries as you're going down the road. But that's more than most of us go. Most of seven well let's say five out of seven days, unless you just have a heck of a drive to work, that sixty miles will do it. So you really never have to put gas in that car. But if all at once you do have to run 400 miles because mom died or something, you're ready to go. That hybrid just kicks in and you still get, my, my girls are getting, my girl and her husband are getting over 60 miles to a gallon average in their hybrid Maverick. 60 now. That, that's, that's getting up there, even against the, the little compacts that try to get 38 and 40, but they've got a medium-sized pickup truck they can use and still getting an average over 60 miles to the gallon. So in my feeling, I guess what I'm going to say, from our homes to our cars, it's really time to start electrifying everything at a rate we can do it. I always get into this with my friends. Well, we can't do that. We don't have the power online. We will have. It's bound to happen. Now, then they say, well, if you are getting an electric car, all you're doing is charging it at your home, most of the time for power made with either coal or now natural gas. And they're right short term, although much less right than they were a decade ago. Texas is, uh, I think at one point, unless it's changed, the largest producer of wind power in the United States now. Even though we, the government and things that we have in Texas are almost anti because we're so petroleum that we've held it back. And we're still the largest wind powered electrical state in the United States of America. Folks, for too long, the climate solution conversation has just been dominated by the supply side view of the energy system. What will replace coal plants? Will natural gas be a bridge fuel? That's what I think is, I kind of use that word. Can hydrogen power eventually power the entire industry? We're just beginning to work on that. These are all important questions, but... Critically, they miss half the equation. We must bring the demand side of our energy system to the heart of what I call the current climate debate. Just for a minute, let's talk about the demand side. It's where humans, households, and vultures live. It is where we use machines on a daily basis and where the choices about the kind of machines we use, whether powered by fossil fuels or electricity, make our climate actions and climate solutions very personal. We don't have a lot of choice on the supply side, but we have all of the choice on the demand side. For the most part... We decide what we drive, how we, we heat our water, what heats our homes, what cooks our food, what dries our laundry, and even what cuts our grass, for goodness gracious sakes. In essence, this constitutes our personal infrastructure, and it is swapping out that infrastructure that will be a key driver of the global transition from fossil fuels to green energy that we do have to do. You can put it off all you want. We've already put it off. We, we talked about this. I've been on the air 22 years. And before that, when I was not on the air, I happened to be an activist, if you want to call that. So 30 years we've talked about doing what we're finally going to get around to doing now. And those that were way smarter than I was, the scientists back then said, this is exactly what's going to happen. The weather's going to get more extreme. When it does happen, it's going to be less predictable. And it's going to be more powerful as, as time goes by. Well, guess what? They, they were the predictors of the facts that we are now living with. Think about this. If we redraw our emissions map around the activities of our own households, we see from what we can now know that about 42% stem from the decisions we make around, this is interesting, our kitchen table. It gets close to about 65% if you include the offices, buildings, and vehicles that are connected to the commercial sector and the decisions we make from our own office desk. We now must learn to supply new electric machines on the demand side with clean generated electricity on the supply side. That's, that's the formula. It's not going to happen overnight. I get so tired of people saying, well, that can't happen. It, it is going to happen. I use this as I, I try to think it's funny, but I don't think it's funny anymore. We did transition, folks, from the horse and buggy to the Model T. And yes, there was resistance all along the way, just like there is resistance now to changing the way we power our whole nation. Look at it this way, just from a fresh look. The supply-side challenge is a question of a relatively small number of giant machines, calling a machine, for instance, including coal mines, LNG terminals, pipelines, refineries, and natural gas and coal-fired power plants, all of which are owned by hmm, us, corporations, directly or indirectly. The demand-side challenge involves a very large number of a relatively small machine group, think about that. In the United States, it's our 290 million cars and trucks, our 70 million fossil-fueled furnaces, over 60 million fossil-fueled water heaters, and 20 million gas dryers and about 50 million gas stoves, ovens, and cooktops. All huge numbers, but of relatively small machines, if you think about it. So what do we do in our own personal lives? For years, I, I... i want to use the word preach, let's at least say presented it as an energy efficiency first. That started back when I was just getting into this in the 70s, and it really started when we had an oil crisis where I remember sitting two hours in line to get gas in my car. During that time, we needed to adjust to a reduction in foreign oil supplies, which led to more efficient cars, and it did, with better gas mileage and more efficient appliances, the, the star rating that everybody goes by now, which is still, I think it's called Blue Star or something, that gave us an efficiency as a, po- a policy within itself, such as federally mandated vehicle fuel standards, and that led to Energy Star appliances, which at the time I personally thought was definitely a step forward. But now we're facing a completely different kind of energy crisis. We now realize that to address global warming in time, to keep the Earth what we call livable, we need to get to zero emissions ASAP, folks, as fast as possible. It should be obvious that we can't efficiency our way out of this thing anymore. Efficiency is not enough. We need to get to zero and that we need to transform our way to no human emissions, no anthropogenic energy going in to our, believe it or not, what's now becoming a realization, our little world we live in. Starting on the demand side, this leads to a clear conclusion, folks. We must electrify everything and as quickly as we can, and we must supply all those new electric machines on the demand side, we're part of that, with cleanly generated electricity on the supply side. How quickly? At roughly the rate at which we replace these things. Cars often last around 20 years. That's why I'm saying it's not going to be tomorrow. Water heaters about 12, 15 years. Furnaces and home heating solutions about the same. Kitchen and laundry appliances, 10 or 15 years. Look at, look at the, what's going along here. It's all in that 15 to 20-year range. The best climate outcome we can achieve is to upgrade all of these demand-side machines to higher-performing electric machines. I'm going to call it as the next retirement. When yours wears out, that's the time to consider it. I'm not asking you to throw it away. That's not running efficiently at all. This needs to be in combination with uh, increasing the electricity supply to the power, the machines that we're going to exchange these with, and to do so with clean renewables, while at the same time retiring coal plants and other heavy emitters as much ahead of schedule as we can. I'm going to break away here because of the way I have to put my show together. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this when we get back to the next part of the show. Thanks for tuning in to Organic Matters.